All right, everyone. Hey, I know you're all just getting settled and seated, but would you please stand to your feet for me? We're going to have our reading from the scripture in just a moment. Um, first, though, I just have to introduce myself. If we haven't met yet, my name's Andrew, one of the pastors here. Oh, thank you. I got some love for Natalie. Oh, that makes me feel so good. You don't know how sometimes scary you guys can be. So getting a little bit of love makes me feel very like, oh, okay, yes, come on. Um, anyways, um, you guys want to hear a quick little story about answered prayer? Like God cares about the details of our lives. He does. Okay, so here's something that happened just last night. I um, was getting ready to like sit down and kind of go over my notes for this morning right now. And just as soon as I started to do that, um, all of a sudden like something weird got into my eye. And I don't know what it was, but it just like hurt so bad. I couldn't even open my right eye. And it was like, it was the worst. And for like an hour, I was like standing over my sink, trying to flush it out. I'm like, how do you do this? And it wasn't working. So I like got Grace and I was like, Grace, you gotta like log into my chat GBT and figure out how do you get stuff out of your eye? <laughs> Literally, that was the conversation that we had. And so we tried everything. All the, all the suggestions that, that ChatGPT had, it was like six or seven suggestions. None of those worked. And so literally, I'm like, well, what's the next one? They're like, the next one is to go to the hospital. And like, I'm like, no, I'm not going to go to the hospital for this. This is so mild. Well, sure, sure enough, I, we start calling around different urgent care places or whatever. And there's no, ur- apparently, don't get sick after 7 p.m. on a weekend in, in Central Oregon because the only place that's open is the ER. So I'm like literally like, are we seriously going to go to the ER over something as silly as something stuck in my eye? And that's literally where we were at. And uh, so I'm like, okay, I guess. And I'm like getting on my shoes. I can't even drive myself. My wife's got to drive me. So I'm like literally we're about to walk out the door. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Like Isabel, Judah, Grace, would you just pray for my eye? Which... I'm really ashamed to say it took me that long, like almost two hours, to even suggest maybe we should pray about this. And uh, so they, they were like, yeah, of course, you know, and they all prayed. And then as we were praying, I just like was, you know, doing what I had done like a thousand times before. I was just like blinking, blinking, blinking. And sure enough, after like a few seconds after they were done praying, all of a sudden, whatever it was, I still don't know what it was, probably like an eyelash or something, popped out and all of a sudden, no more pain. It was amazing, yeah, yeah, see? See what I mean? God does care about the little parts of our lives. So he does care about the little parts of our lives. Um, like last week, I had lost my voice. This week, there's stuff going on with my eye. I'm just like completely falling apart here. But um, uh, it's going to be, I'm actually really excited about today's message. Um, if you've been around, you know, we've been going through the book of Genesis together, just line by line, 30 weeks, kind of looking at the origins. Like what is uh, God doing in the story of the Bible in order to win us back to what he had in mind from the beginning, beginning which is this, this beautiful story of Eden. And, uh, and I was fully, up until two days ago, fully prepared and planning on teaching Genesis 17. But as I was just praying for this gathering and also just reflecting on things that have been going on the last couple of weeks in the life of our church, I just have actually felt impressed by God to give a completely different message and just something that the Lord has put on my heart, and I've just learned over the years to not quench like what I feel is like the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So um, it's a little bit raw. It's just something that's been on my heart the last couple of days. So I hope that it speaks to you. hope it challenges you, encourages you. So um, with that, let's venture into the unknown together here. Um, Romans chapter 12. Actually, let me start with prayer. Father, we, we don't, we, don't, we just want what you want for your church. Our hearts, we want our hearts to be fully devoted to you. And everything you've said you want your church to be, we want to follow you faithfully into that. We don't want there to be any duplicity in our hearts, but we want our hearts to be fully devoted to you. And so I just pray for your grace for this conversation. I pray for your hope for this conversation. And we also just pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. I still, even after all these years, I still still don't know exactly how it works, but I do know that you said that your, your word doesn't return void. I know you said that. And so I just pray for all of the imperfections of my like speaking abilities and everything else, we just just know that you're capable of breaking through all of that and moving in power in your church. And so we gladly hand over the leadership of the church to you, God. 
And we know that you are the true leader of our church. And we want to follow you faithfully. So would you move powerfully in our midst today? In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, so here, here we go. Romans chapter 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. So um, I don't know if you know this or not, but some of the best cultural commentary from the last 20 years has come from Ron Swanson of Parks and Rec. And I know how that sounds. I know many of you are cynical, skeptical of that. But let me prove it to you. Let me show it to you. In one episode, the main character, Leslie, is trying to figure out why it's not working with a boyfriend that she's with, who on paper is a great guy and should totally be a match. And this is what Ron says in response to her. He says this. He's a tourist. He vacations in people's lives, takes pictures, puts them in his scrapbook, and moves on. All he's interested in are stories. Basically, he's selfish, and you're not. That's why you don't like him. So I remember reading that, or uh, reading that, watching that episode uh, a couple of years ago and thinking to myself, damn, I'm going to use that in a sermon one day, and today's that day. <laughs> so that, that, that phrase, he's just doing a tour in people's lives, collecting experiences, building the illusion of relationship, but once he's used you for what you can offer him, you're not really doing it for me anymore. And they find some reason, some excuse to leave. The, the late and great Tim Keller, we lost one of the greats just a couple of weeks ago. He calls this form of relationships economic exchange relationships. You've probably heard me use that before when we were talking about marriage according to the scripture. And in economic exchange relationships, there's this unspoken social con a contract where as long as I get as much or more out of, out of this relationship than I put in, then we're friends. But once it ends up costing me more than I'm getting out of it, then that's when I start to shop around for someone new. And we see this all over the place. It's how we do business a lot of times. It's how we decide where we're gonna eat for date night tonight or whatever. It's, where we, it's how we decide where we're going to shop for our groceries and things like that. But it is downright unloving to treat people, human beings in God's image this way. I think this shines a light on a cultural problem that I see in our culture. We live in a time in history that's marked by intense loneliness, radical individualism, and relationship without commitment. And what I mean by that is that we want the benefits of meaningful relationships without the work of commitment or the risk of devotion. Sociologist Sigmund Bowman in his book, Liquid Love, writes on the frailty of human bonds. He says this, in a consumer culture like ours, which favors products ready for in instant use, quick fixes, instantaneous satisfaction, results calling for no pr protracted effort, full truth recipes, and all risk insurance and money back guarantees. The promise to learn the art of loving is a promise to make love experience in the likeness of other commodities that allure and seduce by brandishing all such features and promise to take the waiting out of wanting, the sweat out of effort, and effort out of results. In other words, at some point, this kind of relationship, it just, it just breaks down. Because love without real commitment, according to the scriptures, is not actual love. And I think, here's my premise, my point, is that relational tourism or a relationship without commitment is inhuman. 
and it causes all kinds of relational trauma. In fact, whether you know this or not, I would be willing to bet that you are living with some kind of uh, emotional, relational trauma from the, the effects of this kind of relationship where you're actually afraid to bring who you actually are. You're afraid to open up. You're afraid to be vulnerable. You're afraid to be yourself because you fear that someone might feel that it's not worth the effort to love you and they'll make a decision to move on. So we become guarded. We become cynical because our past experiences have shaped, have been shaped by, by selfish people or people that maybe mean well and live a different way. In fact, I was sitting with a good friend not too long ago. He's vulnerable enough to share with me what's actually going on in his life. And he says, man, I'm having a really hard time telling who my actual friends are. Because everyone I hear from just needs something from me. That's all I'm good for. And so he's feeling very dehumanized by a group of people who would probably consider him deep friends. So what we do is we end up developing these defense mechanisms where we meant to sort of look out for ourselves. And we cope. We cope by basing our worth on our achievements or some other metric for success or something else. We numb ourselves through escapist behaviors. You hear me talk about that a lot, like getting lost in the world of our phones or binging Netflix or whatever your alternative hobby is. Now, I say all of this and I hope that sincerely you cannot relate uh, to what I'm talking about here. Uh, but sadly, in my experience, you probably do, most if not all of you do. And sadly, the church, with some notable exceptions, does relationships a lot the same way that the world does. And we're getting into why that is in just a second. But the good news is that God designed us for something entirely different than that. See, these are the core longings of the human heart. They may be masked for you right now, or perhaps you're, you're not totally present to them, but and all of the things that have changed in the world over the last however many decades, one thing has not changed. The longings of the human heart have stayed the same. We want to know who will love me? Who will love me for me? Who will know the depths of my heart and stick around? Who can I trust to share my life with? Who and to where do I belong? See, these are the longings that, again, may be masked, but you've been sort of beat up by our culture, whatever. Uh, maybe even some of us have been a part of the problem. We've been contributing to the problem around us. But what I think we discover as we return to the, scriptural, the scriptures and the biblical narrative is that we discover this deep sense of inner peace when those core needs are being met by God's design for family, or what we sometimes call community. It's baked into our DNA as relational people, as handcrafted image of God type people. We are made for relationships. So as bad as the problem may be in our culture, as bad as the mental health epidemic might be, as bad as the loneliness epidemic may be, there is hope because God has actually designed us for a completely different way. And I just want to unfold a little bit of that for you today. So despite all the challenges we face following Jesus in our time, uh, we have hope because the possibility for real relationship has opened up in light of the cross. See, the cross is everything to us. The day that we were saved and every day since, the cross is still the defining picture of our entire life with God. And the cross actually is an, this enchanting kind of thing, as it, among other things, it enchants you. That the Lord would love you in such a powerful and redemptive way. And so um, we actually have hope that there is a family for us that's filled with real love. For example, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says, This is what we know, or this is how we know what real love is. That Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. I don't think it gets any more concrete and simple than that. We know, this is how we know what real love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So in other words, you can put a name and a face to love. You can put a name and a face to it. It's not abstract for us. It's concrete. It's like, what did Jesus do? How did he live? And that's exactly what it means to love. So he was moved by his love every step of the way when he gave his life. 
Not for like a bunch of people who had their act together, but for us, for you, for me, for all of our brokenness and all of our mess and all of our imperfections, Jesus came carried along by his love for us. And then, by the way, in his final breaths, in the, you can look this up in the, in the Gospel of John. It's a really fascinating thing. You want to know the last thing that Jesus does before he breathes his last breath and dies up there on the cross on Good Friday. One of the last things that he says is he's radically reclaiming family. He's radically reframing family. Uh, what it's going to look like for his disciples after he's gone. And he's there with John. John's the only disciple out of the 12 who has, has the courage to stay with Jesus to the bitter end. And then, of course, Jesus' mother is also there. And he puts them together and he says, Mary, John, behold your mother. And then he looks to his mom, Mary, and he says, Mom, behold your son. So in other words, he's saying, because you both see me and look to me as Savior and as King, because of the victory that I'm winning right here, right now on the cross, I am fundamentally changing how you see each other. You are the beginning of this brand new community, this brand new family that is oriented around me as King Jesus. You belong together. And one of the things we do every single Sunday before we uh, have a gathering is we pray in a in a, in a big circle up here at the front of the room. And this morning as we were praying, I just had everybody uh, like grab each other's hands, which for you might sound like the cliche pastor thing to do. And maybe it is. I don't know. I don't care at this point. But the point is that I had everyone hold, their, hold hands with one another and look around at everyone else in the circle and acknowledge that because we all call Jesus King, We've been welcomed into the family. We've been adopted into the exact same family. So we are all God's children. And he has put us together. So part of my faithfulness to God is faithfulness to God's people. And we've somehow separated that out. We've somehow tried to make it like, oh, I love Jesus, but man, those Christians drive me nuts. It's like, okay, I understand people who are on the outside looking in, and it's going to take a minute for us to warm up to the people of God. But once you're in, if you are a mature Jesus follower, if you are growing in Christ, man, like, John, like Jesus says to Peter, he says, you are laying aside your preferences and your opinions for the sake of loving the weak and loving the marginalized. Like, that's what we do. We're Jesus people. And I, I, like, this is the thing that's burning in my heart is this is what I actually desire and want for our church to be known for. You know, to be known for. One of the things that led to this conversation actually was a comment that somebody made. They're a couple of weeks new to our church. And, um, and they were paying me a bunch of compliments, really sweet people, incredible people. And I'm just so happy that they're part of the community. What they said something that, that they didn't mean as a dig, but it felt like a huge dig, which was like, yeah, we've just always heard to never go to Riverbend because that's where you have to go if you're perfect. And I was like, oh my gosh, my heart just broke at that because as you know, that's not our heart at all. No one has to put on a face to perform. You don't have to be perfect to belong. We've actually been strategically for years now teaching the opposite of that. And I don't know why people form the perceptions and the opinions that they do. And I'm certainly not like angry or upset with anyone or anyone for saying a rumor about us like that. But it just broke my heart. It's like, oh man, I can't go down like that. I can't die 30, 40 years from now and say, oh yeah, he led the church that everyone had to be perfect at to be able to show up. No, that cannot be it. We have to be known for our love for the outsider. We have to be known for our devotion to the people in the family of God. So are you with me in changing the perception? We got to be different than that, people. Come on. So what we believe the Lord is calling us to do is to resist individualism. Resist relationship without commitment. And we believe the Lord is calling us into living courageously into what he calls family instead. And I think that one of the primary things that this requires is our courage. We're going to talk a lot about love, but I think what this really requires is our courage. And I think you'll understand why. So into our cultural paradigm, we're living examples of a completely different way where the measuring stick for love is actually Jesus' love for us and his sacrifice on the cross. 
This is our measuring stick. It's not how our culture defines love or, any, or how our culture defines relationships. It's how Jesus defines it. And Romans 12 is perhaps one of the best ways or descriptions, if you will, of what that life in community is supposed to look like according to Jesus himself. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. So, very, very quickly, like us, the church at Rome had all kinds of different problems built in, baked into its culture and everything else. And um, so one, a couple of those problems were they had like racial uh, issues. They had racism and discrimination in the Roman church. They had imperial issues. They were like in the belly of the beast there in Rome. And they also had a lot of religious pride. And so God, uh, through Paul, is writing this letter to correct all of that and to lovingly exhort people out of that. And he wants the community in Rome to actually and truly really thrive. And so, uh, and, and so he's basically saying, you, here's, here's how you know that you're walking in the ministry and in the heart of Jesus. Here it is. It's the culture. It's the culture of sincere love. It's the culture of devotion to one another. And it's the culture of honor. Love, devotion, and honor. These are integral in the family of God. These are integral cultural features of the family of God. So here's how I think we're supposed to see this. I think we're supposed to see this as rules for a loving family, rules for a loving family. Now, you know, rules are sort of out of the mainstream. It's 2023, but I have hope that they're coming back in because I think rules are really good, particularly these rules, the ones that the Lord has handed down for us. For example, the most high-functioning families need, need rules to live by that we're, so we can live well together. For example, in the Rothrock house, you don't wake anybody up without first giving them a cup of coffee. <laughs> like, that's how you do it, right? Like how, like, how dare you, like, wake somebody up without coffee? Am I right, Sam? Yes, that's exactly right. You, if you, if, you know, alarm clock, coffee, then you can set off on the rest of your day. It's just rule number one in our house, honestly. <laughs> so... Uh, the rules aren't bad, see? R rules, when, when they're guided by the Lord, they're not bad. They're actually uh, rules so that, that, that things are going to go well between us as, as, a, as a family. So any loving family understands that we need rules to live by so that we can actually thrive together. It's just common sense. Can you imagine waking somebody up without first giving them a piping hot, hot cup of coffee? Yeah, it's not, it's not okay. But I will say this. The rules, they all need to be spoken they need to be agreed upon, and they need to be coming from the right authority. Spoken, agreed upon, coming from the right authority. So in all my years of working with people, I've almost 20 years in now, I've found that unspoken expectations are one of the main reasons why people experience relational hurt. Unspoken expectations, it just is a really common thing. And so we need to make sure that our expectations are spoken and agreed upon. Now, here's, here's uh, some of you might be thinking, Oh, like you're, you're giving me, really that's what you're doing? You're giving me rules? Whether you know it or not, you're already living by a, a set of rules. You're already living by a set of rules. And if you do nothing, we'll just be following all the same rules of our culture by default. It's just the air that we breathe. So if you do nothing, we're just going to continue down the same line as the rest of our culture in that spirit of individualism. But in the family of God, the good news is that the rules, they're all informed by Jesus' heart of love. He's not condemning. He's not judging. He's filled with love, overflowing with love. That's the whole point. And so he's the one who has all authority. The scripture says he has all authority. Jesus said, I have all authority. And he's saying, this is what I'm calling you to do, to be known by your love and your devotion to one another. So he's the one who's establishing what the rules are. And whether you're like 20 years old and you're like not quite there, if you agree or not, trust me that this is actually really good for you to have rules handed down from the Lord on how things will go well between us, spoken, agreed upon, and coming from the right authority. So the first rule that we see in Romans 12 is practice sincere love. It's not shallow, it's not self-serving, it's not relational tourism, it's not quid pro quo, it's sincere. Meaning that when it's put to the test, it holds up. Love that when it's put to the test, holds up, right? Um, 
So a stunning example of this that I uh, saw many years ago that I still remember and still kind of when I meditate on it really shocks me to my core. There's this, perhaps you remember it, the story went viral, but a couple of years ago, there's a young black man um, uh, named Botham Jean who was killed in his apartment by uh, a white woman because she thought it was her apartment. She walked into the wrong apartment. And there was this man sitting there and he, in, on his own couch, and she, in this moment of hysteria, shot him and killed him. And so it's this terrible story, obviously. Unbelievable tragedy. Anyways, this woman goes to trial. She, it's, it's open and shut. It's clear what happened. She did it. And uh, so anyways, after she is um, charged, they go to sentencing. And before that, they have this moment for... Uh, victim impact statements. And um, this man, Botham Jean's younger brother, Brant, made an impact statement. And he was only 18 years old at the time. He's a Jesus follower. And I guess the question is, like, how would you respond if this is what happened to you, your older brother, for no reason other than the fact that he was sitting on his own couch in his own apartment, is brutally killed? Well, this is what he says. I'm quoting, actually, because it's so powerful. You can actually go and find this in um, like the court documents of Botham Jean's case. But he says this. He says, I know I can speak for myself that I forgive you. And then he goes on to say, I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want for you. I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. End quote. It's remarkable. Just this incredible exhibition of true love. And then the woman, understandably, just breaks down. She feels horrible about the whole situation. Obviously, she did not intend to kill someone. And uh, so, anyways, she just breaks down in tears. And then uh, Brant, he, he asks the judge if he can approach her and give her a hug, which the rules of the courtroom are absolutely no way, but that's exactly what the judge allows him to do. And you can actually find photos of that moment where he just wraps her up in his arms and this woman just wept on his shoulder, the shoulder of the brother who she brutally killed and she was experiencing a love that is unlike anything else in the world. In fact, there was a lot of controversy after the fact because of how it was received and everything else by a bunch of other people. But what Brant was doing was he was making a lavish, never giving up kind of a statement about the love of God that only comes from Jesus. And it set this woman free. And it's just full of redemptive power. It's an amazing story. And personally, I think that is the level at which we're talking about the love of Jesus. And I think the distinctive mark of the Christian community is that kind of sincere love. When it's tested, it holds up. A couple uh, scriptures very quickly on Christian love. 1 Peter 1, 23, 22 and 23. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, since you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now about your love for one another, we don't need to write for you, for you, have, you yourselves have been taught by God how to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. The idea is, hey, actually, you know what? This is to your guys' commendation. Like, you're doing well. You're loving people well. But Keep on going. Do so more and more until the end. Finally, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, Jesus called you. And the reason why you're capable of coming into the family is because of his sacrificial love. Now you hold up that same love for the world. Be humble, gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love. The idea there is a long sense of patience. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So hopefully what you're picking up here as we go along, love the Bible, by the way. Love the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, the idea of love is not a fleeting feeling that comes and goes 
And when our hearts are warm towards each other, that's when we love. No, it's the exact, whatever the opposite of that is, that's exactly what love is being talked about here. Love is a deliberate choice. It's a deliberate action, even when it's hard, that we want to learn from Jesus. Uh, Tertullian, who's a second century um, uh, like church father and apologist, he actually became a Christian because he saw the love of the early church. And he says this, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common amongst us except for our wives. Right? Which, a little bit tone deaf, I don't know. That's not me saying it. That was Tertullian in the second century. Um, but, I, but I love the sentiment. He, he's, saying, he's saying, listen, we, we have these bonds and we have this devotion and we have this commitment to one another. And by the way, um, it's well established in church history that this is probably the primary reason why people were converting to Christianity in those early days. People were dying because of their faith in Jesus. Nero and the rest of the Roman empires at the time, uh, uh, the, the Roman emperors during that time period, the first and second century, they were killing Christians left and right. How do you explain people actually coming to faith? There was a profound, Tertullian writes about it, a profound sense of this genuine love, sincere love that permeated the early community of Jesus. And that's what I, I think, that's why I think that this kind of love is actually attractional. Me loving you, you loving me in the way that Jesus has called us to is actually missional. It's not just about what's happening inside these walls. It's about what's happening outside of these walls as well. It's where we learn and regain the credible plausibility structure that the gospel actually means something, that it's actually real. In a post-Christian society, why would any of your friends, any of your coworkers ever pay attention to another Jesus person? Well, the reason why is because they actually are able to see in your life, through your community, that there are people who genuinely love one another deeply from the heart, even when it's hard, and that love is faithful and loyal to the end. And that is, in addition to the power of the gospel going out, the spoken, powerful word of Jesus, in addition to, the, to that, there is, that is how we regain a compelling voice in our culture. Frankly, in a post-Christian moment, we really need like genuine Jesus followers, people like you and me, stepping into the calling of loving one another to the end. So the second, oh, there's another thought. Can I give you another thought on that? I'm just, I got lost in my notes. I'm sorry. In community, in family, what Jesus calls family, what we sometimes call community, this is a grace-filled practice. It's not something that I say, oh, I love Kelsey. She's my sister. It is something that I say, but it's more than that. It's I devote myself to Kelsey. Kelsey devotes herself to me. It's, it's actually a practice. It's not a feeling or a statement. It's an action. And when we practice that, when we practice family, God trains us. He's, what he's doing is he's training us to do battle against cynicism, do battle against emotional numbness, tunnel vision, where we are like radically individual in our culture. We contend against, resist the cultural way of doing things, uh, and we, um, we find a way of freedom out of our chronic loneliness. So the second rule, there's only three, we're almost done. You guys good? Okay, cool. All right. So uh, the second rule is to devote yourselves to each other. Devote yourselves to each other. Again, this is another thing that's sort of lost steam. <laughs> We've lost the art and skill of devotion. In 2023, a normal part of the secular lifestyle is that you can have sex with a stranger tonight through an app on your phone. Normal accepted part of our day and age. So in other words, what, what are we saying there? We'll skip all of the work of building trust, making commitments to each other, and just get straight to it, gratify the desires of your flesh. Just go straight to intimacy. But in the scriptures, uh, relational intimacy is always connected to covenant promise. Relational intimacy, covenant promise are always connected. God, God does intimacy. He's an intimate God, but he does it inside of covenant promise. Here's what I mean by that. It's a major plot point in the story of God. We've seen this time and again in our Genesis series already. When God makes a promise or a covenant to the blessed family, that's when the relationship really begins. And then what does God do after he makes his promise? He sticks to his word. The, the people of God, he actually, there's actually several metaphors in the Old Testament of the people of God, the people of Israel. The, the Bible doesn't sanitize it, whoring themselves out to other gods. 
And God is saying, but I am still faithful to you. I'm still faithful to you, my bride. So that's the point. That's the, we see that throughout the scripture. And actually, throughout the prophets, we see that one day God is making his ultimate promise come true. And the way that he's doing that is by sending Jesus. And what's going to be reclaimed is the relationship that God always had in mind for us, you and me, in, uh, in the Garden of Eden. He's restoring what was stolen and what was taken through the fall. This is a major plot point of the story. So I think it's not a stretch at all to say, particularly through the writings of the New Testament, that devotion is the foundation of New Testament family. Devotion is the foundation of New Testament family. Because this is how Jesus deals with us. This is how the promise works for us. And then Jesus is saying that just as I have loved you, you love others. This is how we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. It could not be a more clear biblical precedent. I hear a lot of people say, I love Jesus. I just hate, hate the Christians. And I understand where that's coming from. But the reality is, is that if you are a mature Jesus follower, the invitation is to get over those things and to love one another until the end. I say that not, not with a sense of, of religious pride as though I have done this well. You could actually, if you follow me around throughout my life, you'd probably be like, bro, there's many times where you didn't do that. And I'm r- willing to admit that I have not gotten this right all the time, but I aspire become like Jesus and love people faithfully till the end. So the victory that happened on the cross was only possible because Jesus was committed to the Father's plan to rescue out of darkness and to accept you into his family. Lewis Smeads, another theologian, he says, when you make a promise, you tie yourself to other persons with unseen fibers of loyalty. You agree to stick with people that you are stuck with. When everyone else tells them they can count on nothing, they can count on you. When they do not have the faintest notion of what in the world is going on around them, they will know that you are going to be there with them. And in that place, you have created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. And you've made a promise that you intend to keep. I love that statement. And I think the invitation for us is is for us to just become those kinds of people, a community of people with the inner daring to make serious promises and then the grit to keep those promises over a lifetime by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God is inviting us into. You guys excited about that? First gathering was really excited about that. <laughs> yes, thank you. I can, always, I can always count on Natalie. You are my, you are my friend. Oh, somebody else said woo, but I just assumed it was you. That's how much I can count on you. So you need, you need real effort. You need real devotion to have real relationship. And if you made these kinds of commitments to one another, if you're in a marriage, for example, I would argue that you have made this kind of commitment to someone that you're married to. But I believe that also extends to, uh, to, the, to the sisterhood and the brotherhood of the church. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was meeting up with a community, uh, a couple of community leaders, amazing people. There's many of you actually in the room right now, just incredible community leaders, and we are so grateful for you. Um, what always happens in a community at a certain point is things come up. Issues come up, issues arise, and uh, just because I'm not wanting to throw anyone under the bus, I'm going to stay really vague in all my details, so you can't be like, oh, I wonder if he's talking about so-and-so. I don't want to put anybody on blast like that. So anyways, there's this community, great community, amazing people, that's going up against some various things in in their community right now where it's like kind of threatening to break apart because of some relational conflict. And um, I actually think uh, the more that I press into this, the more I actually think that's actually God's design, that's actually God's point, is that we need a mirror. And family, what family does is it holds up a mirror for us to the immaturities, the gaps in my discipleship to Jesus that have always been there, but I'm blind to, and I don't see them. So community, it's like, hey, listen, when a bunch of people get together six months, nine months, a year down the road, things arise, especially when you say you devote yourself to one another's family. And that is the point. It's the mirror that shows you the things that otherwise you'd be blind to. 
And so you actually, this is one of the reasons why you need community. So the leaders of this community are amazing people. They're coming to me like, man, this is feeling awkward. I'm not exactly sure how to handle this. Just minor conflict. How are we going to resolve this without hurting anyone's feeling? Does this mean that we're sort of failing our community? Are we messing this up? And I assure them, no. Again, I think that community is messy on point, on purpose. It's made up of people. Of course, it's going to be messy. And, it's, and so we need to submit to the process of formation through community. And so as we, they were sort of explaining themselves to me, I, at first I was like getting that, that anxious thing that you sometimes get when you hear about people in conflict. You're like, oh no, that sucks. Um, but then I started to realize, actually, this is good. This is good for them. It's good for the community. In normal relationships in Western culture, this is when we would just say, essentially, just move on. You know, our differences, they're, they're just, uh, they're, they're making things weird. The hurt, the hurt feelings, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with you or whatever. The fact that we just don't really vibe together. You've heard of that, that trend, soft quitting. People soft quit on their jobs. People soft quit on their relationships. But they just go, mm, just create a little bit more distance, a little bit more distance, a little bit more distance. Ah, I, made, I made friends I vibe with a little bit better over here. Again, friendships ebb and flow and change all the time. But family... Brotherhood, sisterhood is supposed to be something completely different. In the family of God, this relational conflict becomes the way that God wants to form us. I think the best way to see community is actually a crucible of long-form familial relationships, which are God's way to form us into whole people. So the imperfect, extra-grace people in your community, I believe, are God's opportunity to you to perfect virtue in you. I think, and, and I'm not, I haven't arrived here yet, but there are people who just, again, naturally great against my nerve, my nerves, are difficult for me to hang out with, and everything else difficult for me to love, but when I pray for those people, I discover God showing me, this is, God's, this is my gift to you. Because I want to shape you. There's still some impatience there. There's still some harshness there. There's still some like, lack of compassion there. And I want to work that out in you. And that's what, I want, that's what I want for me. And that's what I want for you too. Which you're like, um, let me find the door. I don't know. I don't know how you're hearing this right now. You could be like, dude. That's a lot. It is. It's totally a lot. So anyways, I walked with this group of leaders and this community, met with a few people, and it honestly went best case scenario. There were hurt feelings. There were tears. There were lots of things that were shared, and, but it ended with everyone owning what was on their side of the table. This is the stuff that I can own. This is the stuff that you're asking me to see and to change. I can't guarantee perfection, but I do promise to go on this journey with you. It's beautiful. You can't ask for anything better. So what we all want to know is, isn't there an easier way? What I just described to you and what I saw in some of your eyes is like, get me far away from that. Like, and again, fair, fair enough, fair enough. I, I get that there's a part of you that goes, no thanks. I'd rather create, curate a community that just is my vibe, you know? Just my vibe, you know? Again, I totally get that. Isn't there an easier way than to wade into all this relational tension, the awkwardness of conflict? The answer is yes, absolutely yes. We're masters of it in our culture. We're masters of it. Here's what we do. We do, we do short-term loose connections. Short-term loose connections. 10-week Bible study on John MacArthur, John Piper, or whatever John you like, you know. You go through someone's book. We, sh we, 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 we read their, their, their literature, and we, and we share our opinions back and forth about somebody we'll, we'll never meet. They wrote it 20 years ago, 200 years ago. Who cares? They're not around. We're not in relationship with them. And then we, then we share our preferences and our disappointments about the other things that we've been a part of, the other Christian events. This gathering, for example, he went on too long, <laughs> or whatever. Again, all of that's fair. Sometimes we just talk about what we did or did not get out of something or what we did or did not agree with, and then the 10 weeks is over, and we take a good long break. We made some friends, some loose connections, but we know who we're not going to invite next time because they made things weird or a little bit awkward or we didn't understand them or they didn't understand us, they didn't get our vibe or whatever. 
where we end up is feeling really good about what we know and our convenient loose connections with each other without actually having to devote ourselves to anyone. And we share knowledge, we share opinions, we share preferences, but we don't share our lives. I said this at the last gathering, opinions are cheap. Opinions are cheap. Love is what counts. And I've got a lot of opinions. You've heard many of them today. But they don't mean anything if I'm not willing to devote myself to you as your brother. And I think the same involved, is, is true of all of us. So it's much easier. It's much safer to do things that way. It's much more convenient. much less work. It's much less awkward. And by the way, I totally believe in Bible studies. I think we should do them. All kinds of different things that we do, short-term ways. We do short, we're doing in the middle of a short-term thing this summer with a bunch of women. We've got events and all kinds of things that we want to do that are short-term. But if that's all that we have, then we're missing a big chunk of what Jesus means by family. Here's what we get. Um, I promise this is wrapping up. Um, we have a sounding board for our opinions but we don't have a mirror that graciously exposes the gaps in my discipleship to Jesus that I'm blind to. We have friends for a good hang, some inside jokes, but we don't have a sister who doesn't need me to pretend that I'm fine when I'm not. And we have uh, the convenience of a weekly gathering, but we don't have the assurance of loyalty in the family over the long haul. We have space to dialogue, but we don't have an ecosystem of love to live it out. And we have well-crafted doctrines, but we don't have a living and powerful witness to our city that proves that the gospel of Jesus is real because of our love for each other. John Tyson is a pastor out of New York. He said it like this. We've been formed by modern church structures and culture in such a way that we don't have the skills or the character to make the kinds of commitments that produce the communities that we actually ache, long for, and read about in the scriptures. So what we want are easy on-ramps and easy exit ramps without any drama where all of our needs are met. Ooh, that puts his finger right on the thing, doesn't it? So the problem is that that expectation is literally impossible to meet on those grounds. Because the reality is is that you can't actually have real intimacy without real commitment. So let me just very quickly invite you um, into my world for a second. Because the best laid vision, the most aspirational message rises and falls on our devotion, our commitment to it. So we can say the right things, but unless we live them, Jesus says we're still the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And I just don't want that to be our story. I don't want that to be my story. I don't think you want it to be yours either. Problems that I'm seeing here with isolation and individualism, they're systemic. You can't point to one person or one leader, one group of people even, and say they're the problem. They're the ones who's responsible. We're all responsible. It's no one's fault and it's everyone's fault, okay? That's not kind of how it works. Here's what typically happens in church. It's happening here too, where some people overfunction. There's like a few of you who just like, man, you really get this concept. And you have been for years digging in and caring for people. Whenever anyone's in crisis, you're right there for them, right? This is what some of you, a portion of you do. Some people also underfunction for one reason or another. Come to consume or something, I'm not sure. Lots of people have empathy fatigue. Like, man, I don't know. Like, I'm asked to care about all kinds of stuff and give to all kinds of stuff and care about this person and that person in crisis and all of the things. I just don't have any more space for that. I I don't, I can't, I literally can't care for one more thing. Others will assume that it's someone else's job to take care of, right? It's somebody else's responsibility. For example, um, there's a friend of mine who just told me this really crazy story about being in L.A., and driving through the grapevine and this massive highway system. And he rolled, he was like one of the first people on the scene of a crash, really horrible crash. And so uh, he did what most of you would do, where he just jumps out of the vehicle and starts assessing what's actually going on. Sadly, there's at least one person who didn't survive and they're just laying there in the street. 
And then there's a bunch of other people who are injured, under cars, flown from vehicles. And he's just like calling 911 and trying to figure it all out and how to actually be a help to someone. And then he looks back and sees hundreds of cars stacking up against the wreck. And he's like, oh, finally, somebody's here to actually help. And so he starts gesturing and calling people to come and help. And no one moves. In fact, it's worse than that. People actually drive past the wreck, like move their way through it, roll down the windows, take out their phone, and gasp as they're taking video of people bleeding out in the street. This is, not, this is a metaphor to what actually happens. Some people overfunction. They step in every chance they get to just care for and to love. And then they look behind them and see masses of people doing nothing. And listen, we, 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 got, we have to be the kinds of people who break this trend. They're actually known by our love. So those 10-week studies that I'm a fan of, um, but they're incomplete, they, they work great at first. They, they, honestly, they're great. They work great. Seen it hundreds of times. It works awesome. There's no drama until someone has some kind of a crisis. And, but they, they understand the social construct, the social contract. The social contract is I can be in pain. I just can't share that I'm in pain. I just can't ask for help. So I just gotta kind of sit there and go, yeah, I thought that was good too. I really liked what he said there. Meanwhile, the inner dialogue is I'm dying. And no one feels safe enough to actually speak up about their crisis. And then things get to an eight or a nine or a, or a 10 out of 10. And now people are really in crisis. And now someone's gotta step in and help because their life is falling apart. And guess what? There are those of you, the ones who overfunction, who step in and step, step up to help. And, and, you know, it's one of the great gifts of the church. We, we, we love to care for people. And when people come to us in crisis, there's like spiritual direction where we spend hours in prayer with people over several months. And we teach them how to hear God's voice and we get them plugged into counseling. We hopefully connect them to a mentor and make sure that they have a group of peers who care for them. And we do all of that stuff as best as we can. But the reality is, is there's so many more people that are needing our help than we are personally capable of of, of helping. And so then in some situations, it, it just kind of grows to this situation where now the person who leads the crisis team, now that person's in crisis. And now that team is smaller than it was a couple of months ago. And now those people have done it 40 times. And they're starting to grow numb to the emotional pain around them just because they're saying yes to everything, much like a police officer or an EMT or a nurse just grows numb to the pain around them. It's a amazing service that they bring to our community, but at some point, enough is enough. You can only be expected to carry so much emotional pain. And, there are, and so what ends up happening is things begin to unravel, slowly unravel. And suddenly, the convenient, easy, no drama study isn't cutting it anymore. People feel alone. People feel unloved. The people who are devoted are overfunctioning, and they're feeling that they're taking advantage of. So again, who's, whose fault's that? It's no, it's no one's. It's everyone's. It's like it's just the, the 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 recipe that we're a part of, and we have the power, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to change, to change. We actually see the first cold, the first community of Jesus followers in Acts chapter two being devoted to one another. They're devoted to one another. They're breaking bread. They're 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 praying together. They're filled with awe. The signs and wonders being done by the apostles. They're together. They have everything in common. They're giving their possessions. They're meeting together with glad hearts. All of these things that we long for in the church. Now, listen, this is not the gospel of personal preference. When I can fit it in, when I have time, when it feels good for me, when it works according to the social contract that I draw up for myself. No. When we pick and choose practices from the way of Jesus that we do or don't want to do, we wonder, and then we go and wonder why we don't have the same power, the same fruit, or the same attractional culture as the New Testament church. Maybe it's because we build a community around our preferences and not a community around the scriptures and God's actual heart of love. Jesus isn't driven by preference. He's not driven by his own preferences. He's committed to the well-being of the family of God, and that's our framework too. 
So we, we need to have high expectation for the Spirit of God to move with power in our midst. That only happens when we live in community like this. So we talk about family. It's not just us talking about the Bible. It's actually about doing what it says. Practice sincere love, practice devotion, practice honoring others above yourself. And this takes a lot more daring. It takes a lot more courage. It takes a lot more grit. It takes a lot more trust. But it works. A loving family over time reshapes you and is there for you when you need it. And I know from the stories that are around this room that I'm personally connected to, I know that it's worked in your life too. And personally, from my own experience, my community has been the truest family to me that we have. Every single Thursday night for seven years, my community has cried with me, laughed with me, helped me, cared for me. They know exactly what's going on in my marriage. They know exactly what's happening with my kids. And they are committed. I know. I've seen it on their phones that they have an alarm that goes off to pray for me. And I'm desperate for that kind of help. I'm, I need that kind of love. And here's the thing. I know I'm not the only one. I have a strong sense that everyone in this room feels like, yeah, I need a partner for the journey. I need someone to love me like that through the thick and thin. I need that. And we can't all be a part of this. We all want to be loved like this. And we intuitively hold our Christian leaders to that standard, as you should. I stand before Christ at the end of my life and give an account for how I led you all. So you should hold me to that standard. But there are very few of us that actually have the courage and the wisdom to risk going first. And the invitation and the call, the, the, the challenge, and hopefully none of this comes across as like, sometimes I have like a heart, sometimes I have a harshness. I'm just trying to be self-aware right now. And as I'm talking, I'm like, I hope you guys aren't hearing this in a harsh way. I hope you're hearing this in, in, as a loving challenge that we need more of you. We need more of you to level up your commitment to care for the people in this room. We need that. And I think that it does not happen overnight. And I'm certainly not wanting to, you know, again, come down on anyone in this room. But, but we do know and what we have seen is that when you devote yourself to a couple dozen people over time, over time you build up those unseen fibers of loyalty that we all desperately long for and need and long and just desire. We're taught by God to love, and we love because he first loved us, like the scriptures say. And like the Thessalonians, we, we respond to the love that we've learned from God and that we've seen from God. And as we do it, we're actually transformed. And um, I know, I know, you know I, I often kind of joke about how I go along, and uh, I, I don't... I don't not trying to um, belabor the point, but I, I am just calling you not to my standard or my hopes and dreams. I'm just calling you to what I clearly see in the scriptures is the way of love. And I just want to gently, but with like insistence that this is actually what's good for you. This is actually what we all need to sacrificially give our life for others, but then the hope that is that others will sacrificially give their lives for me. I've seen that, and it's beautiful. I just want to encourage you into it. So will you guys stand with me, and let's pray. So Jesus, we, uh, we just, first of all, we receive your love. We know that... Um, we love because you first loved us. And this is a deep challenge. We, we uh, don't take it lightly. We, we recognize the risk. We recognize the courage that it requires for us to give ourselves in this way to one another. And that is frankly scary for some of us. And so God, I just pray that you would increase our courage. I pray that you would increase our love for you and our experience of your love that we might be poured out as an offering, as a sacrifice to the ones around us. 
I just, um, if, you, if you haven't really known what the love of Jesus looks like and feels like, I just want to provide a moment and an opportunity now for you to experience him. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are that promise that we have received, that you are always with us. And I just pray for anyone here who's felt, man, I wish I could find that kind of love in the church. I wish I could find that kind of love for my family. I wish I could find that kind of love from my community. Pray that you, Jesus, would answer that cry. And I just pray that the love of Jesus would be poured out on you today. A couple of weeks ago, we got this visual of just an incoming tide sort of sweeping everyone and everything up on into the water. And I just wonder if that's for someone here today, like the love of Jesus is like that for you. God, I just pray that by your spirit, we would experience the depths of your love. And then you would empower us as your people to love the way that you've loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.